Good evening, everyone. I hope that it's not as patchy on your end as it was on my end when I was listening to the music. It was kind of jumpy a little bit. So um, I hope it's not the case for you guys. Um, tonight we're going to do a podcast that I'm going to that I'm going to be included in our unit on plotting for the writer's table. So I'd like it to be an educational resource for for members both now and in the future. So we're going to work really hard to stay on topic. So please keep your questions and comments in the chat room as on topic as possible to help us keep our place on pace. <laughs> okay. So um <clears throat> gonna put Jilly on. Um so far in plotting one oh one we've done um brainstorming, world building, character profiles for your main characters, defining your point of view and the mini plot development. And for me, right after I kind of hit my main points on my plot for my mini plot document which either sometimes ends up being scribbled on the back of my brainstorming pages or I actually end up using it eventually as the structure of my event plot I like to think about my pace and how I'm going to structure my work and where I'm going to start because your starting point is a big it's a big moment for your pace because it starts you on your path and the 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 place that you pick is really super important. So you want to yeah. pick a place that will drag your reader into your content and into your narrative. <clears throat> and and that and that place, if you're starting with a bunch of exposition, um, you picked the wrong place. Because if the right. first thing you have to do is explain, 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 um, you, so I read I read stories. It actually wound up being really good, but and, and I read it on recommendation. But normally, if I hadn't had that recommendation, that is, you know, she says it starts her her thing to me was quote it starts a little slow, is how she phrased it to me, and. In reading it, what I actually got out of It Starts a Little Slow is that the first chapter was just a wall of exposition. Um, there's better ways to approach that, but I do think that the author also started in the wrong place. So I don't think they know how to handle exposition, and I do think that they – and that is a common thing with novice writers is that they want to just explain everything they're doing in the front of the story and then do the storytelling. And that is – terrible pacing it's 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 many things but since we're talking about pace it is it murders your pace from the beginning because you are so slow at the front there's no hook and it's sort of like fishing right you're going to hook people or you're going to lose them on that first chapter sometimes that first sentence or paragraph can be a make or break it Um, and the last thing you want people to see when they open your book or your story or whatever is a giant first paragraph with no dialogue, just a bunch of it, – it, it might not be exposition. It might be just narration, but it's still not a good way to start your story. It, it sets a bad precedent from a pace perspective. Now, I it also – um, Go ahead. Okay. It also uh, sets a precedent in your narrative. Um, that 
you want your reader to dash along with you, not be dragged behind you. If you're dragging your reader from moment one, you're going to continue to drag them as long as they bother to read. And that might be a page. It might be a chapter. <coughs> it might be halfway through the book before before they decide they're done. And they throw the book across the room and they never pick it up again. So you don't want to drag your reader. I'm going to have to hang up and dial back because I think my my call has got a bad connection. But I'll be right back. Continue okay. on. Continue. So we did the um, the check-in for the Quantum Bay this morning. And one of the things that I mentioned, and this was a pacing issue, is that I feel like I finally had settled well on a story. But I have a bunch written that isn't in the story yet because I felt like after I had gotten to writing that I had a big pace problem because I was having – to do too much exposition to explain how I got to where I was. Um, I've run into that before with my writing sometimes. I don't do it as often anymore, but it does. It comes up where I just have picked the wrong starting place. And sometimes I don't know until I get into the writing. And I know how to kind of sprinkle my exposition throughout the story so that the exposition doesn't weigh down or give the exposition in a way that engages the reader. So it was it was definitely a problem of um, my decision to back up and write a different start was all about pacing. And my pace was just murdered by having to constantly explain the events that had led up to the thing. And, and the issue in this, I mean, if this is my QB, I can't talk about it too specifically, but the issue was that I should have started the story at the point of canon divergence as opposed to starting it like two months later and then trying to backtrack how I had gotten there. Um, and you can't, I mean, you don't, I didn't have to do that. I could have stayed where I was. But like I said, I felt like it, I noticed that the pace was suffering for me having to constantly um, fill in the gaps of the things that the reader doesn't know. So um, where you, I, I the, the start point and how you start, not just the actual starting point, but how you start, is so vital to, to creating and maintaining good pace that if you feel like you're suffering with that, I think the best thing you can do is stop and back up. So right now I have about 18K or so that is floating around in another file that is going to eventually parts of it will get brought in. Um, but not all of it. I can't just plug it in. It's not plug and play because all that exposition has to come out because it's actually – you won't need it. Right, because I don't need it anymore. So, And there were some themes um, that I created just to give exposition that I don't need. So I would guess I will probably bring in about 10K of that 18. And the fact that I'm losing 8K, <laughs> I'm losing like half of my guess. Um, that tells you how off I was on the start of the story. Uh, it, and, you know, it, it always is a little bit that moment where you go, oh, I started in the wrong spot. And I have that moment of like kind of, uh, but I'm much It's agonizing. It and I would, yeah, it is. It's a difficult it's decision to agonizing. make. But I would rather make that decision and have the story start in the right place and not feel like my story was heavy is what it felt like. It was like, like Kira said, it's like being dragged along 
when you have that pacing issue, it does feel like your story has weights attached to it, and you're just kind of dragging it along, and that's never what I want. So I back and it's boring. And I'm, when you're yeah, boring, boring the shit out of yourself, you know you're in trouble. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing that entertains me so much as my own ideas, and so if it is boring me, that's not good. <laughs> it really isn't. That's a that's a good indication is when you're we're working on something and you're bored with it, you've got a problem somewhere. Um, unless you just naturally bore yourself, uh, which would be sad and maybe you need therapy. I don't know. But that's you know <clears throat> um for me, uh one of the decisions that I make at at this stage before I start my event plot is I decide when in the timeline I'm going to start my story. Do I need a prologue? My gut answer is always no. <laughs> it's like, nope, But I sometimes don't. your gut is wrong. That's more of a knee jerk than a gut. Because <laughs> right. you did and, have a gut so, reaction. Yeah. You did have a gut reaction recently um, that you needed a prologue, but your knee jerk reaction is that you don't. So you had to ponder it a long time. I did have to ponder a long time, and I wavered between all through the writing of calling it chapter one and calling it a prologue, but structurally, um, in the end, it was it was definitely a prologue, and um, getting there, because uh, I, I hate prologues, and I'm not particularly fond of epilogues either, uh, I don't skip them in the reading, but often I will do a lot of work to avoid writing one, Um Writing the epilogue for uh, for Darkly Loyal was more reader service than it was anything else. Because I felt like it really didn't need it. But I knew that my readers would be like, but <laughs> I want to see the babies. <laughs> so I put some babies on it. I slapped some babies there. But for me, honestly, Darkly Loyal felt complete at the end of the last chapter. I felt like I was done. But um, sometimes as a writer, you 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 give your reader something you know they want. Mm-hmm. And for me, that, that epilogue for Darkly Loyal was something that I assumed after all that murder... <laughs> That my readers would need, kind of like a little palate cleanser, you know, yeah. at the end. So, Well, there's also the element that sometimes the story is complete where it is, but the writer, of course, has more. They have that that completion in their head, more that, and that I call it the palate cleanser, because they know what's happening. But I've read many a story that ended on a point where I would call it, from a craft perspective, their ending was perfectly fine. But from an emotional perspective as a reader, it was very unsatisfying. It was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> all of that and really nothing good? <laughs> I mean, it's like the character comes to this point of realization or something and then nothing. And it's like I get that the, the realization or the decision was sort of the point, but we don't not actually seeing it was hard because it just left you feeling kind of... Huh. Think about now, someone um, privately to me told me that the last line of Darkly Loyal was kind of ominous, and maybe it was. But <laughs> the whole, the, but the whole story is kind of ominous. Because what he tells exactly his daughter, rainbows. 
Right. Well, what he tells his daughter is that um, that he got the bad guy and he always will. Um, because ultimately in that story, Harry is death. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no escaping death. <laughs> you know? It gets us all. Harry's like, I do what I want. Um, so I, I don't have a problem with epilogues. I mean, I, sometimes I can see that from a craft perspective, they're not necessary. So from the writer side, I get it not doing them, but from the reader side, I often really appreciate them because it just kind of gives you that uh, feeling. I'm like, okay, I know what happens. I, I have a glimpse into a happier future, especially if the journey's been difficult, murderous, bloody, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, yeah. More angst. I have a really hard time with, you know, 90K of angst and then, um, you know, 500 words uh, to wrap that up. It's like, uh, <laughs> I don't feel good. <laughs> it's sort of like the end of uh, Infinity Wars, you know. It's like, oh, uh, you kind of walk out all dejected. <laughs> um, Everybody that. You know, at the end of Infinity Wars, um, we're all sitting there waiting for the for the after scenes, and the whole theater was just dead quiet. Yeah, with the occasional, <sighs> like grown men look like dejected toddlers. We all fall out <laughs> of the theater, looking at each other, like, "Did you fucking see that? <laughs> what did we just happen?" Now, how you end your story can be an issue of pace. It's not always an issue of pace, but it it can be because making your reader feel like they've hit a wall, like they've literally like crashed. That may, I mean, that it it may be what you're going for, but it also might not be optimal. Um, It all depends kind of writer you are, um, what what kind of audience you have, what they like. but I would say definitely specifically in, in, in romance and that kind of genre that your reader feeling like they've been slapped with the ending might not be optimal for the genre. Um, but really, it, it depends on the genre. Like with um, like with a romance, the reader expects to end with a happily ever after or at the very least a happy for now. Um in science fiction and in fantasy, um, in adventure, they expect a victory. Mm-hmm. In in suspense, mystery, they expect in a mystery, resolution. They expect a resolution. Um, they expect the bad guy to get caught. Um, in a suspense, they expect that resolution, but they also expect their main character to be in a place of safety at the end. If you read the in death books. Have you noticed that a great majority of the of them end with Eve coming back to Rourke? Like he's her safe place? That it oftentimes yeah, have... end with her um coming home or just retreating into their relationship as a safe haven? I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, she she definitely um I haven't read all of the in-depth books, but yeah, there is that mm-hmm. sense of when she comes back home, it's like, oh, or comes back to him. It's like, okay. Huh. You kind of just kind of let it go and go, oh, okay. Um, yeah. And that you is got the hot iris. <laughs> Everything's for, fine. For me, as a, 
as a reader, that's important to, and it is that is an element of pace is the the the, the falling action that come down that emotional that emotional relaxing as you as, if you as it, as it were that you kind of let go and go okay this feels like it's done. Um, I don't remember which of the Shannara books it was. Um, there's one of them that I just, it, most of them, at the first, I think it's the first, the first three are the ones I really like. Um, no, the first four um, are the ones that I really like of the series. And one of them, the end felt so, I was so tense by the end. And I wasn't used to that in those books. I, I want to say it's, which one does she become the tree? I don't remember which one she becomes the tree. So. You haven't read them? Oh my gosh! Okay, so when she it, that, that kind of that to me kind of came out of left field. It kind of came completely out of left field to me. So I'm changing locations here for just a second, um, and so it just I don't know the ending just felt so like, kind of like a letdown. So it was it was a difficult it was a difficult end because I didn't feel hmm, as a reader I didn't feel like I was back in that kind of safe place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My family just got home from the beach, and so I had to change rooms so that they can make lots and lots of noise. Because that's what they're cool. really good at. Um, <laughs> what I was, you know, actually, if you look at the overall pace of um, the Clan of the Cave Bear series, uh, what's it actually called? Children of Earth, a Starship Planet of the Cave Bear, and it ends with her being exiled um, from the people, from the Neanderthals that raised her, um, um, leaving behind her child, and it's in a point of transition for her. And as I think one of the reasons why the the reader, a lot of many readers were super disappointed in the last book is because it ends with her wandering off into the wilderness to kill herself. Right, I didn't read it because I was told it was terrible to not read it. Um, <clears throat> because this is this is someone we've we've grown up with throughout the series, and her her ability to survive and take care of herself um, in a world basically designed to kill her. And then at the very end, we get her suicidal over a man. Really. <laughs> That's where we ended up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> I was like, no, <"Nah>, dog. <laughs> She's a badass. This is, this is not how this is supposed to end. And even worse, it was supposed, it was supposedly a misunderstanding. So when you, um, which is terrible, um, I hate nothing more than a misunderstanding that never gets resolved. In, in in fiction because what communication is hate, a thing yeah i don't like mis, the misunderstanding trope anyway misunderstandings i mean misunderstandings happen but when they become a critical plot element like people have a misunderstanding for years you know um they break up over it and they never talk i mean that's just not my experience of how adults, you know, and they manage to never say the one thing that would clear it up. The, and this is, this is a ripple thing. It's like in order to make your misunderstanding happen, the character doesn't ever say the logical thing. That just feels super contrived. 
But yeah, blah, blah, blah. I prefer the okay. big secret over the misunderstanding. I definitely prefer a big secret. The misunderstanding trope is one of my least favorites. Um, and it was really big in, the, in, in romances in the 90s, 80s and 90s. It was like, to me, it was like misunderstanding trope. Was, it felt like half the books I picked up. And I just, I was like, I can't deal with this misunderstanding thing. So the book was Elfstones of Shannara. Um, that, that, that had that ending that I was a little bit, I found the pacing of Elfstones to be really in your face. Um, I think it's the best book in the series. Um, if you want a book to me that had a really intense pace, I would say Elfstones. Sword of Shannara had a very much more relaxed pace. So it kind of sets you up to think you were going to get the same thing in Elfstones, and Elfstones is like a slap in the face from a, from a pacing perspective. And not in a bad way until the end for me. Um, it's one of my favorite books, but um, I, can, I always get the plots of Elfstones and Wish Song twist around in my head. Um, and honestly, the most scared I've ever been in a book was in Elfstones. The Demon Chase in Elfstones and Shannara was... Um, I need to go back and read that to see if it's as intense now as I thought it was the first first couple of times I read it. Um, but I mean, that was how, that to me at that time that was like the, my gold standard for how you wrote an intense action scene because it scared me to death. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was hyperventilating. That was my reaction to reading that the first time I read the story was I hyperventilated through that and I had to actually take a break and like literally put my 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 head between my knees because I was afraid I was going to pass out. But yeah, the ending of that book was was brutal. It was brutal. It was a very difficult ending. Um, anyway, um, yeah, Liz. Uh, some, some people in the chat had the same reaction that that it was a very difficult ending. Um, in the narrative, when you talk about pace, you control pace through sentence length, paragraph length, um, the space between events. Um, narrative versus dialogue, uh, but on top of that, th- uh, that's that's micro and macro pacing, um, which uh, I've never really talked about too much on the podcast or maybe at all. Uh, but micro pacing is when you're pacing literally by sentence, by sentence, by scene, by scene. You're like te- dissecting, and I think that for a lot of people, micro pacing is just about as entertaining as watching paint dry (laughs) i have no i don't macro pace i have been known to macro pace which is um structuring short and long scenes um and uh short and long chapters to create um momentum in my narrative uh which can also be difficult in the fan fiction environment uh, if you're not doing chaptered work, if you're just doing a story where you're not chaptering, because um, chaptering plays a part in pacing, especially macro pacing. Um, <clears throat> but one of the um, decisions that you make in your in your mini plot is not only uh, when you start, but the general. You pick out your major events and in what 
order those events will take place. And the event of your and the order of your major events can definitely impact your pace. If you throw a funeral in the middle of um your your increasing action or you throw a really depressing um event or narrative decision into your increasing action, you're going to slow your pace down. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've to say in, in regards to the, the pacing with using chapter length, I mean I this is just my personal preference as because it's because I'm sensitive to it as a reader that I don't do it much as a writer. Now I do have some variable chapter length, but I don't tend to try to manipulate pace with chapter length. And I think one of the reasons I would rather have a chapter of typical length that feels short because it's action packed and well written than one that is shortened um, to me artificially. And I guess I, even even when I was young, I'm talking like you know, ten, eleven years old. I would notice that a chapter was artificially short and it felt like I was being manipulated. <laughs> That's the way I interpreted it as a teenager was I'm being manipulated to think more is happening than there is. <laughs> and it irritated me. Well, I, so my macro level do it. as far as like, like chapter shortening and lengthening is usually no more than 2000 words. The difference between, um, I think, um, for me, I prefer an average chapter length of about of about, about five thousand. But if I want to increase my pace a little bit, I'll drop down to forty one hundred, forty two hundred words. And if I want to kind of draw it out a little bit, I'll go up to six thousand, maybe sixty five hundred. So it's never like a huge amount, but even that little bit yeah. can increase pace. Yeah, or and pace. I I. I have some variability like that too. I would say my average chat, I do shoot for the 5k because that is, it's just under 5k. It's like they took all of the, like, you know, thousand most successful novels of all time and they didn't average on their chapter length. It was just under 5,000 words. And so that became kind of the rule of thumb for chapter length in fiction was 5,000 words. So that's always been my target. Um, but sometimes I am, in this this becomes a matter of where I break scenes, right? It's sometimes there mm-hmm. is no good break. And in that case, I might, I've had chapters run to 8,000 words, which I don't like, but it's better that than to have the next chapter have the pacing be off because I could find a break. It would be like a chapter, you know, a, um, it'd be a cliffhanger kind of thing, which I don't do very often. And then you have right. the next chapter would be short, unfortunately. So then you have to tack on a scene. And it can throw your whole – when a scene runs longer than expected, it can throw your whole chapter structure off to break it prematurely. So that chapter just sometimes will run long. And the funny thing is sometimes those chapters where the scenes run long, um, people don't perceive that they're long because it's, it's, there's a lot going on. So they don't even notice right. how much longer it is. Um, so I don't mind that so much. I don't mind some variability, but the thing that I'm sensitive to is like when I'm getting typically a four or five thousand word chapter, and all of a sudden the chapter's a thousand words. Um, That's the thing. I close something. I if if you give me a yeah. two page chapter, I'm only give you two fingers. Yeah, I will. Um, 
that's when I thought my that's like they're, they're artificially manipulating the face. A, a few hundred words either way, or sometimes I mean, if you I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep I'm gonna tighten this. Like if you write a scene that's five thousand words, I think people edit them down to like forty five hundred to tighten it up and make it feel faster. I have no problem mm-hmm. with that at all. But it's when you have a traditional chapter length and all of a sudden you've got a thousand or fifteen hundred or even two thousand word chapter that feels like you're manipulating pace in an artificial way as opposed to editing to make it tighter or, you know, in drawing it out by adding extra dialogue, whatever. Um, And you don't, honestly, you don't want the reader. You don't want your reader to even notice your pace. No, you want them stopping to think about how you're manipulating your pace because if they do, they're out of the story and they're noticing what you're doing. And, um, you should be invisible to the reader. And I talked about this briefly in, in point of view article that I that I posted that you should not be talking to the reader. That while a novel uh, is a conversation between a writer and a reader, the reader should not be aware of you. You don't interject you you don't aware interject of yourself. Right. And you should not they should not be aware. Pacing should not be its own character. That they should be enveloped into the experience you're giving them and not notice your pace, not notice anything you don't want them to notice. You want to keep them in the story. You want to keep them turning the page, pressing the down button. That's what, and you want everything to be all of the stuff you're doing that you work so hard to do, you don't want them to see it. Um, and the better job you do of doing that, the less they're going to notice. And that's a good thing. Um, you don't, it, it, it's a similar vein of like research. If your reader is stopping to think, I guess you did a lot of research. <laughs> and that comes about when you're sharing things that don't move the story forward. You know, it's like, or character, if they stop, if they start reading your novel to look up the dimensions of a Pinto's trunk to see if you actually could put a body in that car. Yeah. (laughs) Now, sometimes I do get curious about something and I do just go check it out. But um, I was reading a story where that, where it was a very minor element that the character decided to start eating healthier. It was like an ode to veganism, this story. It was just, so was much. it Kimmel? Yes. I've read that what? story. <laughs> um, the food, food, food can be a big element of the story because it's very social, right? It's very social. People get together. They talk over food. They, it, so you, bringing elements of that in is not a problem. When people start noticing, you don't need to put in what everybody ordered and every reaction to the food if it's not germane to the story. So it was. It got to the point that the food was distracting, and I started dreading mealtimes. Um, now, on the other hand, I've read stories, particularly I would say, particularly in The Hobbit, where there's a big focus on food, but it's 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 like um, it's part of how the characters interact and kind of develop with each other, and it doesn't. It never quite hit me the same way but it wasn't just the focus on the food it was it was the focus on the health aspects and it was a little bit like being lectured 
Um, it was honestly like the food was another character in the story. It, it became was. It was like distracting. The diet. There was. The diet became another character. It, it was distracting and off-putting. It would have actually been better if it had had side of a cracky from from the from the food perspective. To have that much about the food, you would need the diet to be like an omniscient narrator that had its own personality. Um, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be cracky as fuck, but that's the only way I can think of that, that it needed to play that much of a role. Um, and it's like you feel like the author's either on a soapbox or they did a bunch of research or something. And the thing is doing a bunch of research is to make sure you've got your facts in order and you sprinkle in the bits that make your story sound authentic. You don't actually tell the reader everything you learned about stalking in Maryland. You know, I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way because the reader starts to feel like you're trying to school them. And it doesn't move. And the, and the reason is it doesn't move the story forward. If it's not critical to the plot, that kind of, you know, focus on all the stuff you researched or whatever your area of expertise is, just it doesn't help. It really is distracting. So um, it was, uh, yeah, pe- people, yeah, people are, so, it, it, people are recognizing the story. And I, I don't want to call it out. I'm not going to mention anything else about it because I'm not trying to call the story out. It actually, I found it to be, it's interesting that I found it to be a good story, very entertaining, it, but it really jumps out this one element of food, which has which has a it has a purpose at the beginning of the story, but the fact that it's just held on and on and on and on and on about what people are eating and when and it's just and everybody's orders constantly, it just becomes like Kira like a character in the story, and that affects the pace tremendously. This story should have had a much better pace than it did and its pace was weighted down by food in this particular case. Um, the diet weighed the story down, which I'm sure wasn't anybody's intention, but it was um, it, it's just never what you're going for when you have when you I did come away with the idea that the author was deeply invested in their own vegan diet. <laughs> yes, I, I had that I had that impression too. Um, and like trying to maybe convert some people to veganism. <laughs> um, but anytime you kind of, when you, when you have a thread you're going to pull, like if you're going to make food a, a central component in your story, um, to be like, there's a story um, in The Hobbit, I remember, where like Bilbo is like getting people to cooperate with him on stuff by making them the food they like. Um, and it was kind of charming, but and so that that really worked, right? But if, if you're going to have a, you know like something you're going to put in like that, it's kind of as a plot device. It has to work to move the story forward. If it's not doing anything for your plot, it's just like this window dressing that doesn't help. Um, I'm writing a now, story about a female Bella who ends up in the Blue Mountains because she's bartered as from the Shire as part of a trade agreement with the dwarves, and she ends up married to Thorin, and she takes over the kitchen um, because she can't stand their food. They're, they're killing her. And in fact, when Dumbledore comes to re- offer to rescue her from her situation, not Dumbledore, good Lord, Gandalf comes to rescue her from her situation, she tells him she doesn't really need rescuing unless it's mealtime. 
<laughs> because the food right. is so terrible. And then she would offer him tea, but it would be insulting. And so she takes over the kitchen, and she uh, she just digs all in. She um, she makes uh, this this one dwarf dude who doesn't have rock sense or stone sense um, start gardening. And she's just she's gonna she's gonna turn their shit around and um, make them eat healthy whether they whether they like it or not. And so for that, like it's just part of her character, you know, because she's a hobbit and she can't and she's not eating another dry chicken as long as she lives if she has a damn thing to say about it. And um, so yeah, it's called the bartered bride. And uh, Bella's just she's not having it. She's she's just not gonna have them making war on her at the table at the dinner table because she's a fucking hobbit. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think in hobbit stories, the reason why the food thing works so much for me is because they are hobbits. It is so <laughs> integral to hobbits in general. And they have said in the middle of the day. That's some serious shit. But it's sort of like um, I don't know what, what approach you're going with with that, but. How you bring the cooking in, so like if Bella's taking over the kitchen, the level the level of detail at which Bella takes over the kitchen, um, like if Kira was giving, I, uh, maybe, maybe you have, I don't know, but if Bella is giving dwarves instructions on how to measure flour, I would find that odd, personally. I mean, no, it might, no, it's, there, it's more about um, nutrition, and she thinks, in her little hobbit way, that one of the reasons why their birth rate is so low is that their women aren't nutritionally um they're not being adequately fed nu- nutrition wise and a lot of them don't have enough body fat to actually produce children and so she's all in on making these female dwarves fertile <laughs> <laughs> and i by and i love and that's what I'm talking about, like, especially in the Hobbit fandom. I see stories where the food is integral to the plot, and it really works. But if food isn't integral to your plot, why are you talking about it? And you have to ask right. yourself that question about anything. So, like, let's say you're writing a case fic for a, a procedural crime drama, whether it's Criminal Minds or NCIS or whatever, Y50, I don't care. And you happen to know a lot about law enforcement procedure, okay? And you're you're doing – the writing the story, the case, you know, the case is it's involved. The case stick is basically a basically a little bit a little bit like solving a mystery. It follows kind of that um, general structure of sort of a mystery thing a, a little bit. If it's sort of like drama mystery combined, um, if you are putting in a lot of information about law enforcement procedure that has nothing to do with solving the case. That's the kind of thing. It's like, what is this doing here? That feels like it's trying to teach the reader something, and maybe you are. Maybe you're trying to show that you know a lot about law enforcement. I don't know. If it's not furthering the plot, what it's doing is it's killing your pace because it's just there. It's like, okay, instead of just saying they gathered the evidence and took it back to the lab, um, talking about you know, if it's not relevant, talking about how they lay out um, the flags and take the photographs and how to properly do a crime scene sketch. Um, that's really tedious. It's really tedious to read. Now, you will find there will be some people who want to read that, right? There's always some people who want to read anything. But that's kind of not the point is that is there an audience. We're talking about generally what's good craft, for especially from a pacing and story structure perspective. And That's also detail. the people who read, who, um, who watch every single bit of the making of on the DVD. 
Yeah. And the people who read, you know, Planet of the Cave Bears to learn how to make soap. Um, I I tend to um, I skim. I mean, this this is just me. I tend to skim the things I'm not particularly interested in, but I don't feel like I want to know the next thing that happens, right? So, like, there are some books where I do skip a lot of stuff where I feel like I'm being informed of something. Um, and some people probably read all that detail and it gives the story a lot of credibility, but. In general, that kind of stuff is hard on pace. And like an example of that to me, um, other than Clown of the Cave Bears, it would be The Martian, which I really enjoyed, but I do like the movie better because I feel like the book is very slow. Um, now, I know, I know a lot of guys, especially the guys who geek the fuck out over all the detail in The Martian. It, it just doesn't interest me. <laughs> it's very dry in places. Um, ew. Yeah, I don't really want to know about skinning animals. It's, that's just the kind of stuff I tend to skip. So some people really want to write that kind of thing. But I do think want to write, that those books would that those books would actually be a really good guide to have if we were, you know, in an apocalypse. Yeah. Um, because she dug all in. It, we would be able to, you know, skin animals and make soap and make water our own leather. Oh, pro tip. I mean, Did you know that basically every mammal has just enough brain matter to cure their own hide? Gross. <laughs> I did not know that, but now I do. But, I mean, if there's a zombie apocalypse, yes, I'm going after Clan of the Cave Bears and the Martian. But um, that's not my, that's not my general... Um, preferred reading. And, and since we're talking about pace, these are not good examples of good pace. They're good examples of maybe something else, but from a pacing perspective, they're not good examples of pace. Um, yeah, there are even, and I, smaller transport guys. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But the Martian actually suffered, I think, um, um, pacing issues um, because the author dug a little too deep into those potatoes. <laughs> yes, the potatoes. <laughs> Although I was obscenely invested. I cried when the potatoes died. I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. Was more, <laughs> I was more invested in the potatoes in the movie than I was in the book, though, because I was skimming a lot of stuff because it was tedious. So, um, right. And that's and, and you know like some people some people some people really like a nice slow leisurely pace, but there's a difference between a leisurely pace and a bogged down pace. And to me, when you put in a lot of detail that isn't moving your story forward, to me that is a weighted pace. It is a pace that has an anchor that you have to drag for the whole story. And the thing is, if you let up on that level of detail, you really will hurt your pace because you'll go from weighted. You mean to like you know bouncing around on a buoy? It's just it. Well, it, honestly, it yeah, that kind of weight, that weight is a commitment. So if you go in with that much weight, you have to carry that weight the whole fucking book. So these decisions that you make as you're getting ready to move into your event plot are really important because you're making commitments about your narrative. And what you're going to carry with you through 75, 100K, 150K, 3 million words if you're writing fan fiction. <laughs> but do you are it. making a commitment. When he runs out of ketchup in The Martian, 
I was like, oh no. <laughs> There's no more ketchup. <laughs> What's he going to do? But then he had, but then he had Vicodin. Yeah, they had, yeah. That, was actually, he had Vicodin. that actually was one of my favorite scenes is when he had that little bit of potato and he's opening up those Vicodin <laughs> capsules. And he's dumping them on the plate. And he said, because I ran out of ketchup. He said, I'm giving you my potato and Vicodin because nobody can stop me. And I ran out of ketchup. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one's policing this. He's in international waters, more or less. Not, not at that moment, but in general. The blonde beard, the whole, that whole thing about the international waters. And here's, this is an interesting thing. Is In the movie, um, one of the longest single bits of exposition was that lecture about international waters. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Because generally the exposition bits, you're not really he's not really talking it. He's not talking to it. You're seeing it and a little bit of talking. You're getting it's kind of it's kind of using kind of a, like a mixed media to get to get the information to you. You're seeing him doing stuff, he talks to the camera a little bit. Well he stops and talks about him being um space pirate. That is quite <laughs> A, a, a chunk of exposition he gives you, and it is incredible. If he was doing that constantly, it's right in the book too. <laughs> yeah, he's doing that constantly. It would have not jumped out as being such a, a shining moment if he was constantly giving those giant chunks of exposition, because it would just feel like more of the same. It was great. Yeah, the King of Mars, Captain Blondebeard. That was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I love. I, I actually love the movie. I especially love the extended edition. If you haven't seen the extended edition, you should. Um, I love the movie. I like. It's one of the one of the rare times when I enjoyed a book that I liked the movie a ton more. Um, usually, if I enjoy a book, it's a, I don't enjoy the movie as much. But this time, it was reverse of that, and it was just because, for my reading preference, the pace of the book was a little sleepy. <laughs> so. I enjoyed the audio version of the book more than I did the actual book, which is really rare for me. Because the narrator was really entertaining. Yeah, personally, I haven't listened. I've, I've heard. I I actually have the audio version. I started listening to it, but I never finished the audio version, and who knows why? Probably because I got distracted by a squirrel or something. Um, well, I should go back and listen to the whole thing. But you need to decide what kind of pace you want. And whatever you do, when, what kind of pace you want in your story, if you, want it, if you want it brisk, if you want it. Now, sometimes even if you want a brisk pace, you have to rein yourself in a little bit because you don't want the reader to get to the end of something novel length and feel out of breath. That can be a little bit too much. That's um, just, you know, most people who have a very brisk pace find moments to slow it down a little bit to kind of rein things in. Not tremendously, we're not talking about putting in a lot of frivolous stuff, but just maybe add in a couple, you know, make the dialogue, pull the dialogue out a little bit, or make the sentences a little bit longer, or something to just kind of bring the pacing down a little. Because for me, that, you know, we show pace on a, when they show, you know, those, those like cliche graphs that are not at all accurate, where you show this sharp rise in pace and it goes straight up and then it comes straight down. Um, no, it's actually, you know, pacing is a little bit more wavy than that. And that's what you want. You don't want, <laughs> you don't want a steep incline on your pace to a sharp climax and then you fall off a cliff. 
That is like Wally Cody. Yeah, it's nobody's idea of a good time. So, um, but there's nothing wrong with saying going into your story and saying I want a kind of slow, leisurely pace, or I want a really brisk pace. Uh, But you kind of got to know what kind of story you want to tell. Um, And no matter what kind of story you want to tell, I would say try not to give yourself anchors. I would say, like, if you want a slow pace, like a, like a leisurely pace, I would say you're looking at, like, when I think of a leisurely pace, I think of books like, I think of Jane Austen when I think of leisurely pace. Um, I don't find her books weighted, but they are more like an afternoon stroll than a jog, if you know what I mean. It's like writing a love letter. Yeah. It's or reading a love letter when you read Jane Austen. Yeah, um, and very visual and... Um, I think Anna Green Gables is that way as well. Yeah, I agree. Whereas other things, especially in other genres, are, and romance, and now one thing I like about romance is there's romances that are like Jane Austen, and then there are romances that are, you know, they're hard-hitting, it's action, you know, um, the pace is super brisk, and you, you find that kind of breadth there that not all genres have that kind of breadth and pacing. So you can kind of do what you want, but you need to know what you want. That's one of the things I think is really critical about craft is that you have to be more deliberate than I think people often are and make choices. And you can but when you make these choices in advance of plotting, it really takes a lot of weight off of you when you're getting into the plotting stage, when you're in your event plot. And I'm not talking to people who pants um, because this isn't, this isn't for you because you don't do this. Um, if you want to try to do this, then come on in. But don't be – I'm not asking you or demanding of you to do this. This is just what we're talking about. <laughs> this is this is what this is about. Um, and making these decisions in advance, filling out these character profiles, doing your mini-plot – doing your event timeline, um, knowing the history of your characters, knowing your history, knowing your characters' timelines when they're born, you know, when their parents lived and died, if they're not alive now, you know, when you're writing your story. These are all these decisions that you make before, then when you get into the writing stage, you're ready to fly. Yeah. Now, pantsers have to address their pace at some point. It's more of an editing task or a rewrite task. They can't just ignore it. Um, and in fan fiction, I can almost always spot pantsers, sometimes strictly in the pacing issues, because it's like often we've got very brisk pace, and then all of a sudden, like, they stall out for a chapter while someone unpacks. <laughs> it's like, um, Honestly, I think pacing is one of the most difficult things to edit. It is, because in order to affect a fixed pacing in an edit, you often are cutting, and people are so resistant to cutting. And that's where an editor helps, because an editor will take that big old red marker and go, no, 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 no. But it's it's hard, and it hurts, because you get it back, and the editor says this whole scene has to go, um, and you're like, what, what, what? <laughs> I don't want to cut that whole scene. It's t- I like that scene, but this scene means a lot to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's your word, baby, and it feels like someone's trying to cut it up. But that's what—that's how pacing gets fixed in an edit. Is it's usually with cuts. Now sometimes you have to then go back in and 
put in um, some stuff to kind of keep them keep to kind of round things out a little bit because sometimes you flash so much that your chapters are too short. You have to restructure the. It, it's work to fix a pace problem in an edit, but it and can also, be done. Pacing can infect. Pacing can actually infect and corrupt your character building. Um, I had an issue early on in my um, in my quantum bang where um, I wasn't sure if I was having a characterization issue or if I was having a pacing issue. And I passed the um, the draft to Jilly, and she said, "Oh well, you know, it's kind of both." <laughs> this is what I see, um, and uh, I I added to the scene that I was having problems with, and it smoothed right out. I was like, oh, okay, because I just couldn't see it, you know, because you get blind to your own your own work, so especially when something is frustrating you and you can't really put your finger on it. And that's when that alpha reader is really valuable, is that when you know there's a problem, but you can't, you can't see the forest for the trees. <laughs> yeah, because I think at that time, you were early on, enough in, that the issue became that you were focused on the plot and you're going, well, I don't need these things for the plot, so I'm not going to do it. But you needed them for the character. And so it, right. your, char- your character, because your characterization was hurt, hurting for the, from, because the pace was too fast. And um, let me give you an example. Um, I don't think, if you haven't seen it, this won't be a great example, but most of you have probably seen Ocean's Eleven. And I hope, hopefully many of you have seen the reboot with Ocean's 8 with um, Danny Ocean's sister, Debbie Ocean. Um, Ocean's 11 is a very, I would say, I, I like the pacing in the movie. I think it's very good in general. There are a couple places that there might be some things that they could have tweaked, but in general I think that it's one of the things that stands out about Ocean's 11, particularly over even the other the two sequels, is the pacing in Ocean's 11 is really nice. Um, Ocean's 8 I enjoyed the movie, but it suffers from um, a pacing issue related to characters, which is it needed about 10 more minutes in the story, in the movie, um, in my opinion, because the movie fell flat for me a little bit because there wasn't the same investment in developing the characters that we had in Ocean's Eleven. Um, There were a lot of entertaining scenes that developed the characters in Ocean's Eleven, that we don't get in Ocean's 8. So the characters all feel a lot more two-dimensional. And the movie's pace is fine. It's very brisk. But it feels flat because the um, characters, we didn't get that character development. So this is a case of like where character development can really affect the pace of your story, even if sometimes taking those moments out to develop those, that, that, those bits. Um, don't feel like it's furthering your plot it rounds your story out and makes the overall story better because your characters are more real. And so that's a difficult thing to do when you've got eight main characters, basically. Well, basically two main characters and six secondary characters. But it is... It it, it was a good movie that could have been a great movie if they had spent ten minutes, seven, seven, somewhere between seven and ten minutes getting a little bit better character to, character development, something to make these people a little less flat, a little less like plot devices. So uh, if you've seen both those movies, that would be, that's my read on them about where pacing is hurt by not, they just kept furthering the plot and not focusing on the character enough. 
Because you need both. You need a story that pulls people along and characters people want to read about. Having just an interesting story is never enough. At least not for me. Because I, well, I'm a character-driven author and I'm a character-driven reader. So if the characters are falling flat for me, I'm going to lose interest. Yeah, you need to make me love your character. Or, or alternatively, hate their guts. Either way, I, I need some kind of emotional investment to read it. Yeah. yeah. It's not that they might do more in a sequel. And it's true. They might develop the characters better in a sequel to do a little bit more. But typically, you never want to go into a project assuming you're going to do critical work in the follow-up. Because you can't First impressions are everything. Yeah. You, can't, you might be able to do that in the second movie. It was really, if you have a, a sequel to something that was really successful, you might be able to leave that some stuff hanging for a third movie. But I just, I don't see that you can afford to take that kind of gamble in a first movie or a first book or whatever. If you are planning a multi-story Well, they arc, obviously gave themselves room for a trilogy, Oceans 8, 9, and 10. Yeah. Then Butting maybe, into yeah. Oceans 11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it just felt it, the character work made the movie feel a little fragmented um, and it really wasn't actually so if you kind of sit down and kind of dissect the plot there's nothing in the plot that was really all that fragmented but the character work is what is what does it is that they all feel a little disconnected and it has to be a really nice and I think Ocean's Eleven is a really good standout of where an example just to contrast the two first movies and the two different section of the franchise that Ocean's Eleven didn't, didn't suffer from that. That you didn't suffer from feeling like you weren't invested in the characters or that you didn't know the characters or whatever. So, yeah. You might not get a chance to do that second movie or that, you know, that second book. So you can't count on the critical piece coming later. You have to, um, you have to sell it up front. Sell it the first time. Is there an example where some writer focuses too much on character and not enough on the plot? That can also cause a big pace issue. Um, I think well, there are times in in Harry Potter. In Harry Potter, um, her characters suffer for the plot because there were so many things that had to happen in the plot that it made the adults in Harry Potter look like monsters. Even yeah. the ones that were on the good side. Harry Potter is a really good example of where the character work caused the plot to suffer. Um, the first thing that popped to my mind, and not everybody will have seen this, um, and it's not even, I'd say it's not a movie I enjoy, um, was The Professional. Um, I, I almost had no idea what was going on in that movie. I was like, they're really focused on this weird dynamic between this hitman and this little girl. And um, it was like, is there a plot here? What's going on? I mean, there were times, I, mean, I eventually I followed the movie okay, but that's why I think they're so focused on the character dynamics and the characters and the, the sort of, some, I don't know. That's one of the, if somebody asked me for, that was the first thing that popped in my mind with that question was, 
um, an example of too much focus on the character and not enough on the plot was The Professional. So you may not have seen that movie. I actually wouldn't recommend that you do because it's kind of that. I found that relationship to be uncomfortable. Creepy. Um, yeah. But Well, um, Natalie Portman even said that she played it like she was um, in love with him. Uh, no, that's like added a layer of creepy. Um And, and I, yeah, now, now that you said that, I could see that in, in the movie. Um, yeah. But the, I, when I think about the story, that movie, I think about their interaction and their character dynamics. I don't think about the plot at all. Um, Which means the characterization overwhelmed the plot. Yeah. Another example I would give of that... Um, it's probably my most detested movie of all time. Not maybe not not quite, but close. Is the English Patient? Um, oh God! Could that should have dragged on any longer? That movie was the worst paced movie of all time, in my opinion. I mean, we were a half hour in, and I thought it had been two hours. And. I looked at my sister I and I felt go, like it lasted at least five hours. I don't know how long it was. Yeah. But it feels like it was I think at least it's, five. I think, it's, I think it's a two and a half hour movie. Um, but I was about a half hour in. I looked at my sister Bullshit. and I go, this thing was over. <laughs> it's got to be at least five hours long. <laughs> it feels five hours. Um, but I looked at her and I said, is this thing almost over? And she said, it's only been half an hour. Like, oh my God, we're going to be here forever. <laughs> I mean, I made it to the end. There's one scene that I liked, and it was a visual. There's nothing going on, right? It was just this visual thing. But, I mean, I vaguely know what the plot is, but, I mean, the plot is about 15 fucking minutes of a two-and-a-half or three-hour movie. It was, ugh. So there's my example of, like, the worst-paced movie of all time is The English Patient. I mean, the pacing is dreadful. Dreadful. It's absolutely terrible. Um, I can't do that. anything that's, that's worse, actually. Um no, I agree. I I can't think of anything that was it was worse as pacing. The, the editing was terrible in the English patient. But here's an, I have an example of when pacing um, is deliberately slow uh, to create this ominous feeling, and that's 2001. If you've ever watched 2001 um, and not gotten really nervous for no reason that you can discern. <laughs> Yeah. Then you haven't been paying attention because 2001 is 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 the pace is so slow and you feel like you're not going anywhere and you feel just as trapped as the as he is. I would also you're say in the same still vein, trapped like Dave. Yes, I would say in the same vein of a pace that you wouldn't that doesn't feel slow when you're in it. But it actually is fairly sedate and kind of almost constant until the end is the first Alien movie. It has a very different pace to the next movie. The first movie was more action-oriented. Yeah, the second movie was very action, and the first movie was, they call it a suspense, and I agree, it was, a suspense, it was suspenseful, but it wasn't suspenseful because of the pace, because the pace was very, um, it was almost measured. It's almost like a measured pace, uh, and alien. It was um, like, um, alien is suffocating. Yeah. No, you're saying sunshine is suffocating, but I think alien is suffocating in its own way because she's trapped in the ship, and you don't see the alien to the very end. And you don't know what she's up against, and she doesn't really either. And 
everybody is dying around her because they refused to listen to her. Mm-hmm. They all died it is this- because because they overruled her decision to bring that thing on the ship. Mm-hmm. They Alien was this slow. It was like this slow walk towards doom, and you felt it with every step. It was like this is going to go bad. This is going to go bad. This is going to go bad, and you get more and more and more tense. But it's not happening quickly, if you think about it. It's not happening quickly. It's just this constant no. building pressure. And I agree with you; it does feel suffocating, and it is terrifying for that. But that is a very it's slow, psychologically measured terrifying. Pace. Yeah, it's, it's a very it's slow not, measured pace. Um, so, but yeah, and aliens is like boom, 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 kick ass, yeah, it's boom, like boom, and it's really fun. It's really fun, and the pace and is epic. And they're both great movies, which is why they talk about the best sci-fi movies of all time. Alien, depending upon who's putting the list together, Alien or Aliens is in the one or two slot, and the other one is somewhere in the top ten. Because And, right. and the pacing of those two movies could not be more different. But they're both fantastic at the kind of pace that they have. And fuck the rest but of the But I think 2000... I think Alien and 2001 both represent a really good example of what you can do with pace and the kind of, um, especially in movies, not so much in books, I don't think, where you can create um, such an ominous feeling with the pace and the cinematography um, because it's just stunning. Mm -hmm. I think another good example of pace, and the pace was almost used as, a gimmick in a way, which you don't find out to the end. Um, but he tried to use that gimmick again and again and again, and it stops working. Was in the sixth sense. Um, mm, I agree. That had, that also had a very slow, measured pace. And the pace, you knew something was coming. You knew there was a, a reveal, but it's like, what is going on here? But the pace was very um, measured. It wasn't a quick pace that movie at all. Um, and I think it's one of those things that you kind of get one time at. You know, you don't get to do it again and again and again. Uh, so I think I think the rest of the movies that have that similar, he tried to use the same pacing structure and it didn't work like the first time. But yeah, it, it was a really good example of that also. So there's nothing wrong with having, I think sometimes people think when we talk about pace that it means keep your pace quick. But it doesn't. It means you need to know what kind of story you're trying to tell and what pace serves it. And then you need to stick with it. I would say that one of the more interesting, um, and I don't often, in fact, I don't enjoy flashbacks as a rule. Um, and I don't like uh, storytelling that's not told um, in a linear fashion um, as a rule. Mm-hmm. But I think that one um, one story that is really that really benefits from that structure is Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it, uh, the danger and the perversion of Pulp Fiction just kind of just lingers in the background the whole time you're, you're watching the movie. Um, and not the whole thing is perverse. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, oh. <laughs> it's really perverse. It's kind of like um, Clockwork Orange. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Perverse. Mm-hmm. 
and a really damaging picture of humanity. And no, the worst science fiction movie is not Dark Star. The worst science fiction movie ever made is Life Force. (laughs) And I will not be convinced (laughs) otherwise. (laughs) She has a very strong opinion about this. (laughs) She will not be swayed. Pulp Fiction is kind of like Deliverance. And Deliverance has a very deliberate... Um, ominous pace as well. Um, and then it gets epically violent really quickly, and it's like, boom, boom, and then you, you just... Not that we're suggesting you watch it. <laughs> yeah, don't watch Deliverance, it, and don't watch Don't Pulitzer watch it. Uh, no. um, it especially if you have figures about rape, because both Deliverance and Pulp Fiction have rape in them, explicit rape. Male rape, as a matter of and fact. Clockwork, and it's, it's and not, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, um, it's just not something that you want. You know what? One of the worst movies I watched for Pace would be Sphere. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. I was like, mm. Sometimes it's easier. It's funny because I was just thinking about, we're talking a lot about movies with Pace. And it's a little bit easier to point to Pace issues with movies because, um, well, for starters, people more universally have seen them. So it's easy to people to more – if you pick a single book and say, here's an example of Pace, compared to, um, say, a, a very popular movie like Iron Man, more people are going to have seen Iron Man than have read whatever book popular book is. And that's just kind of the statistics, right? But also it's very visual, um, and also, when you're reading, you may be skimming stuff, and it makes the, you, it may just be kind of naturally the way you read is that you speed read through certain things, and so that you don't really may not really notice pacing issues sometimes in books the same way you would in a movie, where you're sitting there in the theater and you can't there's no fast forward button. You can't just like skip through and assume you're going to catch everything because when you're skimming down a page you kind of naturally learn to look for certain keywords, you're looking for dialogue, you're looking for changes in the rhythm to let you know that this thing that is boring you is done. And the more you read, the more you do that automatically. So, um, and sometimes you probably don't even notice, but you don't really have that luxury in a movie, so it's a little bit easier sometimes to dissect the pace of movies, for me, than it is to dissect the pace of a book. If you look at classical books that we've all probably read, um, um, the Secret Garden. Moby Dick. Uh, Secret Moby Party. Dick. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, I think the taste of Moby Dick is terrible. Uh, it is absolutely horrific. Um, but the worst paced novel that I ever had to read um, was The Grapes of Wrath. Oh, oh God. Um, I know it's an allegory. But come on now, I did not read A Tale of Two Cities. I said that I did. <laughs> I actually like enjoyed I The Old Man to See. <laughs> but I did not read A Tale of Two Cities. I was supposed to read A Tale of Two Cities. It was part of my senior um, AP English class. Um, but I read the Cliff Notes and got by. <laughs> It's like, I don't need that. Yeah, sometimes some of those books, uh, yeah, Cliff Notes is all you need. Um, Wuthering Heights. 
Oh, I hate Wuthering Heights is one of my most hated books of all time. Drag you down and beat you to death with the narrative in in Wuthering Heights. It's twice as bad as Moby Dick. Yeah, and not only that, I also hate the tropes in in Wuthering Heights. So, um, hmm. I hated Heathcliff with a passion um, <laughs> that I can't that I I can't even quite adequately put words to it because I hated him so much. And that was my reaction. You look at Shakespeare. Shakespeare would be a, a really good example of um, where pacing is good and pacing is bad. Uh, Romeo and Juliet has terrible pacing. Oh, I agree. The characters in a modern um, mindset come off looking like little idiots. I mean, it was a four-day romance that killed how many people? <laughs> it's like, how many people do you have to fuck up in order to have your little love affair? It just comes off as very childish. Uh, uh, Macbeth, though, ha- I think has excellent pacing. It's very exciting. Um, Taming of the Shrew I think has has is, yes, is interesting in its pacing. pace. Um, it's Hamlet, great. Hamlet was a little bit slow to me. Um, not not in a bad way, but it was a little slow comparatively. Um, I liked the pacing of Twelfth Night, um, but it is a little slower than say Macbeth. But that's my my perception of it. To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie has excellent pace. Um, the book. It suffers a little in the narrative, I think. It's it's a great book, a little, but the pacing yeah. is a little, a little wonky in the narrative. Getting back to the chat room. Um, that's someone who who read who 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 did Russian literature and in school and reads it for fun. Um, you crazy person. You have a lot more. We still love you. You have, you have a lot more. Yeah, we do love you. But you have a lot more tolerance for pace issues than I do. <laughs> Um, I think that Much Ado About Nothing Lovely has beautiful pacing. characterization and mm-hmm. it's paced very well and um, it uh, yeah it's it's great I I recommend both the play and the movie <laughs> mm-hmm. the movie with Kenneth Branagh especially you know? the movie is amazing <laughs> it's a great yeah, movie the pacing of I that movie is top notch So frustrated by which. Actually, from a pacing perspective, I think that Much Ado About Nothing might be my favorite. Um, I agree. I agree. I mean, it is just. Um, it just when takes I want you something along, to... like, a, like a. I don't know. It's just very sweeping. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And and love. when I want something. And... When I want something that's a little bit more sedate, I would probably go more towards Twelfth Night. Um. If I was going to go some more today, I'd probably go towards more Othello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare read out loud by obnoxious college students is great. Now, I don't, I don't recall liking King Lear. I mean, that's one of the ones that I read and I went, eh, mm-hmm. no. Um, but sometimes I will say sometimes, especially for me with Shakespeare, is it depends upon in the time of my life when I read it. Um, and sometimes a book hits you hits you badly. Um, 
the first time a book or a play hits you better the first time you read it, and then it it hits you better. I one of my favorite romance novels has a major pace problem in the first chapter, and it the pacing of the book is exceptional, but it took me months and multiple attempts to read that first chapter to get through it. My mother recommended it to me, and she was not she. A A was her book, right? So this is this is a while ago, paperback, right? It was her book, and she wanted it back. And she's like, "Have you read it?" But she didn't want to take it. She wanted me to read it and give it back. She didn't want me. She didn't want to just take it back. So like every time I turned around, "Have you read it?" Well, I started it again, but I got bored. Um, and that's a crime, really. It it, it really is tragic. That the pacing is so off in that first chapter because. It's an exceptional book, but it, I mean, if I didn't have someone harassing me into it, and she told me that she had the same thing. If someone told her, "You've got to read this book. Just struggle through. Just you know, power through the first chapter, and you'll love it." And she had the same experience, so she was telling me the same thing. But this was particularly a time in my life when my attention span was, you know, very short. I wasn't powering through anything. If it didn't grab me in the first paragraph, I wasn't reading it. And this didn't grab me in the first chapter, so I didn't know what to do with this. And eventually I just got tired of her harassing me, so I finally finished reading it. Um, but when I think about examples of, like, first chapter pacing, that is the first thing that comes to mind is this book that I wound up loving, that I laughed my ass off, that I thought was great. And the first chapter is so tedious. It's so tedious. And it's just, it shouldn't, that, that's kind of the thing you typically done. And it ha- did the author is very successful. It was one of her earlier books, but it did not. This actually did not hurt her at all, really. That her that this book had a, but it, it was a common complaint. Was that first chapter was so off-putting, and um, her editor to be spanked. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the kind of thing that you just don't want to have happen. Is that everybody says it's a great book, but just get through the first chapter. Um, you yeah, want drag your, first your ass to the first deal. chapter, and then, and then you'll be fine. That's just not right. good to hear. I would cry if I heard that about my book. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> your so your sorry, first chapter is supposed, it. supposed to be your hook. That's when you're trying to you're pulling people in, and that first page is you're dragging them in. And if they're just suffering through your first chapter to get to the rest of the story, that um, I'll put it in chat. I don't want to say it on the podcast. I'm on my tablet now because I did move rooms. I remember um, watching the Princess Bride movie, and I'm really enjoying the movie and um, wanting to get the book. And my mom um, took me to the library because that was a time when the Internet basically was little to nothing aging myself a little bit and we were looking for a copy of the princess bride because i wanted to read the book and the librarian was like well there's two versions of the princess bride and i'm like really she says what is and then there's this one (laughs) she didn't say and she said but then i picked up the cover the, the book that she was recommending that i read um and it literally said Something like the Princess Bride, the good parts version. Well, <laughs> being the person that I am, I checked out both. 
And I quickly discovered why there was a good parts version, because apparently the author of The Princess Bride dedicated whole chapters to Princess Buttercup packing up her farm to move to Prince Humperdinck's castle after Wesley was gone. A whole oh, fucking chapter dedicated to her packing. We all know who've read The Princess Bride or seen the movie that her packing up the farm didn't add anything to the plot. So you don't need to first, I put down that version and read the, the the good parts version. I have read many a book where I wish there was a good parts version. That would be great. Some books would be very short. Much like Moby Dick, the good parts version. Um Well there might not be much left, actually. Um I get that Moby Dick was kind of a cautionary tale. I just didn't need that much of it. <laughs> At least that's the way I, I interpreted agree. it. it was like, yeah, don't, I didn't don't, need that don't much do. either. I didn't. And the problem is the good parts get, were subsumed by this quest that just was pointless, and it went on and on and on and cost so much. And like I said, I get that it's kind of a cautionary tale. That's the way I interpreted it. But it was boring as fuck, so... That's not true. Fuck is great. It was just really boring. It was boring as the English patient. Now, some books I just find offensive, right? That's a completely different issue then. I'm not getting anything out of this. So, we kind of I was trying about... to find the good parts version on um, Amazon. But it's very difficult to come by. I'll have to see what version I have. I bought that one that they did the illustrated version they did recently, the hardbound. The, the brown Apparently cover. the original is 493 pages. That's a lot of pages for that book. And the anniversary edition... And it does have the actor and actress on it from the from the movie um, is four hundred and seventeen pages. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was reprinted in two thousand seven. So I'm not sure they're actually still printing the original. May not be because it might have been so expensive to print that if nobody wanted it, that they just stopped printing it. You might have to get it on eBay. But it is available on Kindle Unlimited. So I think if you're a um, Prime customer, maybe you can get it that way. I don't know. So I don't know why you'd want to. Um, I can't actually. Sometimes you wind up incidentally reading or watching examples of bad pace, but I wouldn't actually seek it out. Um that's a very tedious way to learn. One of the worst um, books just, I ever had the um, unfortunate um, experience of being exposed to was my husband is a huge sci-fi fan. And he is he is epically um, deep into his man crush um, with Isaac Asimov. Um, so I've read, so I've listened to a lot of his audio books and it's just, they're all tedious. But the most tedious was not an Asimov book. It was L. Ron Hubbard's um, 
Battlefield Earth. I'm not saying it almost ended my marriage, but do you know that audio book is like 25 fucking hours? I would. Now the movie I'd be was, like, honey, I'd be like, I'm taking the, a vacation. The, the, movie, <laughs> the movie was wretched. Okay, um, it started in a terrible place, and I listened to all about the Earth actually. So I know going into this movie that when I see what they've done, they've picked the wrong place to start. They have, um, they've, uh, they're telling the wrong story. And I'm not even a fan of of, of Battlefield Earth. And I knew that the movie was was just the wrong story to tell. There are like, honestly, Battlefield Earth is so long that there are probably out of that could be made out of that book, and every one of them would be better than what. The, on the fans got so I was actually really disappointed um, for my husband that he got such a shitty movie out of a book that he really enjoys yeah um, that's because unfortunate they could have done so book. much better with the content of that book than they did I mean basically it was like they took two chapters out of a book and made a, out of the book and made a movie out of it and it just it was it was a really poor choice. And it's really funny and interesting that John Travolta was the spearhead behind that. And he's a Scientologist. You think that he'd have been a little bit more careful with um, Hubbard's work. Just saying it's, it's practically sacrilegious if you're a Scientologist. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is a movie that, um, I saw that the pace was pace was so bad. I it, it I could spend an entire podcast talking about the pace problems in this movie, and that was um, it's not a fran- it's actually not a franchise I particularly enjoyed, but my family wanted to see it. And sometimes movies are like you go along because everybody else is going, not because it's something mm-hmm. you particularly would seek out. And that was um, I. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I kind of enjoyed. I didn't really enjoy Dawn of the Planet of the Apes all that much. But I went to, with family to go see War for the Planet of the Apes. It probably could have, should have been one of the better movies in that trio of movies. But the pacing was so messed up. It was so messed up that the climax of the movie, when it happened, it just was so flat. It was like, I think the climax just drove by. <laughs> and it wasn't very interesting. Um, and it should have been. I mean, how could something that had that many explosions be so boring? But it was because the movie suffered from a pacing issue. But by the time you got to the climax, it wasn't interesting. Honestly, things that happened earlier in the movie were more interesting. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think most of it, I, oh, I've talked to some people who didn't like War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, and a lot of them couldn't articulate what the issue was, why they didn't, why they disliked it so much. And I think it comes, I think it's like 90% of what's wrong with that movie is all in the pace. Um, you just, no, no. Um, one of my favorite books, talking about books with a good pace, um, one of my favorite books is, it's a big series, the best book in the series is The Warrior's Apprentice, um, the Miles Rokosigan books by Lillis McMaster Bujold. Um 
the first book, The Warrior's Apprentice, has stellar pacing, and it is a it is a very steady climb from a kind of moderate pace at the beginning that starts picking up, picking up, and it picks up. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not a jagged increase in pace. It's not jarring. It just. It's one of those books or movies or whatever it is that you see that the pace picks up in a way that pulls you with it. You're just so with the increase in pace that by the time you get to the climax it's really going at a much faster clip than where you started, and that is a good acceleration of pace. Um, I think her pacing in that book was exceptional. Um, the pace of the falling action was really good. Um, she generally, I think, does a pretty good job with pacing, but that first book was just really exceptional on, on, to me on the pacing front. Um, and if you like sci-fi and you haven't read The Warrior's Apprentice, I just I really cannot recommend the book enough go read that book uh the name of the series is the miles work coast again books um but if you just look up the warrior's apprentice you'll see the um i'm on my tablet it's very difficult to get a link but i'm sure somebody can find a link to the warrior's apprentice but i, will I am on it. put it set um Great sci-fi. It's great sci-fi. Her first book in the series, um, it's sort of like a. She kind of has a set a, a series of prequels too. I think there's three. Um, that were actually one of them was written before The Warrior's Apprentice. So she wrote them in kind of. They weren't written in any kind of linear order. Um, it feels more like a sci-fi romance than the rest of the series. So the books that are prequels kind of stand alone. You don't need to be read. I actually wouldn't read them first because they have a very different vibe to um, the actual Miles Rokostigan books. It's all the stuff that happened with his parents. It's kind of its own like little mini-series, and it's a very different feel, different pace, different flow than the actual Miles Rokostigan books. Yes, the Rokostigan saga. And probably one of the funniest things I have ever read in a book was in one of her later books. I think it was Diplomatic Immunity. Um, Diplomatic Immunity. I, I laugh so hard, I'm lucky that I didn't pee myself. Um, but I may have the wrong book. That I'm, it's, the Is book The Warrior's Pe- Apprentice the first one? That's the first one to read, yes. You can go back oh, and I'm read the parent stories. Husband. You can go back and read the parent stories, you know, separately. But I recommend if you want to like be pulled into the series, and like the the, the best example is that first book. Um, and then, like I said, she started injecting and in, bringing in humor um, later in the series, especially as the character got older. Because I think he's he's seventeen, I think, in the first book, but he's got a congenital defect that um, causes him to look a lot older than he is. Um, And there is kind of a classism in the book that I just mentioned this as a possible trigger topic since I'm recommending the book series. Um, is um, there is kind of a classism that borders on racism in the book in in his home planet? Um, he's very he's he's where they they're they're a society that um, embodies perfection, especially physical perfection, and people who don't meet the that standard are kind of thrown away by society. And he's, he doesn't meet that standard because of a, I think it was some kind of neurotoxic toxic gas his mother was, a, was, a, was exposed to during pregnancy, um, and it caused some defects that his parents weren't going to, like, kill him 
which is something that happens on their planet. So the book is about him kind of leaving his planet, coming into his own. But if that kind of thing is like sensitive for you, you as a you know the reader, um, like literally nobody else in the solar in the galaxy thinks that this is acceptable behavior. What goes on on this planet? So it's not like anybody's approving of it, but it is there. It is an element that he has to live with for most of his life and something he's trying to get away with and kind of comes in his own. So um, I do find that that is an exceptional book, and it is a really good example of um, a nice um, steady increase in pace in the novel. I'll, I'll link it to my husband because um, the audio version gets really has gotten some really great reviews. So, you know, thank you. <laughs> And the character has incredible, incredible lines. There's some stuff that he says. Um, only people who've read that book will understand when I am talking about Weezy Forward Momentum. <laughs> he, just, he just gets into trouble after trouble after trouble, and the way he handles it is just forward momentum. We're just going to keep going. It reminds me of that scene in Deadpool where he's like 100% effort or something like maximum effort. Maximum effort. Maximum effort. <laughs> Before he does. By something. the way, I, um, if you have not seen Once Upon a Deadpool, see it. It seemed like a ridiculous thing to buy a movie I'd already seen that is cut down to be PG-13. Why would I do that? Because it's awesome. You need to see Once Upon a Deadpool. <laughs> It has scenes you did not see in the original movie, and the Princess Bride um, storytelling aspect of the whole thing is fucking hysterical. So uh, if you've seen Deadpool 2 and you enjoyed it, you should get Once Upon a Deadpool and see that too. because it is, I've seen it is the, to, the trailer for it with Fred Savage. He was like, you were yeah. nicer when you were a kid. And I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> but I haven't bought it, it yet. It's, it's so good. I won't. I won't tell you guys some of the stuff that happens, but it is. It is really good. So definitely, um, yeah. They cut out. They cut out some surprising stuff and put in some stuff that surprised me. I was like, wow, that was. I where did I? I kept looking at my sister like, did I miss this scene in the original movie? She's like, no, that's new. Um, how so um, how long there is are, it? I'm not sure how long it is. I don't remember. But they definitely do cut some stuff, quite a lot, actually. Um, oh, yeah, because it's filthy. Will be a, yeah, very, very abbreviated. Not just for language, they cut a lot of the bloody violence out, too. They had to, because the amount of blood yeah. and gore in the original wasn't going to make a PG-13 cut. Although, um, honestly, yeah. when, his, when his team dies, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of the, a lot of that's still there because he's teaming himself to die, but just anything that's particularly graphic, anything that was strictly graphic in the original movie isn't there anymore. So um, the bloodier it was, the less likely it is to be in the PG-13 version. But it was, it has so much um, charm and humor in it that it is, like I said, I was like, no, why would I buy this thing I've already seen that I already own? Yeah, you need to... You need to see it. It's really good. Speaking of pacing issues, you've se- if you've seen Deadpool 2, there comes a scene near the end uh, when you're waiting yes. and waiting and waiting and waiting. And you get to the point where you're thinking, for fuck's sake, Ryan, just die. <laughs> What's taking you yes. so long? 
That, it's that on was purpose. dragged out. It is absolutely 100% on purpose to make you so yes. aggravated that by the time he actually dies, you're relieved. Yes. <laughs> he comes back as it is a simple. But it is a, it is a, a deliberate, deliberate pacing problem. I was like, for fuck's sake, just go, just go. <laughs> Would you die already, motherfucker? So by the time it happens, you're not even sad. You're just mad that it took so long. <laughs> Which I think is 100% the point. Yes, clearly. But even with it being the point, I think they could have cut about 45 seconds off of it. And it still would have been aggravating. <laughs> when we watch it, it's like, would you forward through this shit? <laughs> I can't take being this aggravated. I would guess that Once Upon a Deadpool is almost the same length as Deadpool 2 because they put so much in with the scenes with Fred Savage and the additional scenes that they added that I can't imagine that it's it's significantly shorter than the original. But um, My husband was talking about um, the DC Comics and specifically about Justice League and various members of Justice League that we might see in future movies, if there are future movies. Um, we're talking about Martian Manhunter, and we got on the subject of Green Lantern. And um, I was thinking they probably won't use the character of Hal, um, Hal, Hal Jordan, because um, that's the version of Green Lantern that Ryan Reynolds played. Um, and he's Deadpool now. And he said, well, he might come back and do it. I said, you've obviously not seen Deadpool 2. <laughs> Ryan has made himself perfectly clear on whether or not he'd be interested in revising the character. You're welcome, Canada. Green Lantern. (laughs) So I described it to him, and his mouth dropped open. He goes, They let him do that. They let him do a lot of things, (laughs) including the the version of Deadpool in the Wolverine movie. (laughs) Yeah. He, they let him pretty much do whatever he wants, including apparently kidnap Fred Savage. So, um, <laughs> so yeah. Okay, so there is one minute difference between the two movies. <laughs> They're both basically two hours. And Fred Savage is so dry and so snarky that he's a delight in Deadpool 2. Um. Yeah, I'm mean, after. I I've already seen it twice. I need to watch it again because I felt like there were some things I missed. But yeah, go see it. Go, not go see it. Rent it. Do whatever you have to do to see Deadpool. To see Once Upon a Deadpool because it is worth it. Yeah, it, Ryan Reynolds did really put pull out all the stops to get do Deadpool. the Deadpool franchise off the ground. So, um. I didn't I'm, hate Green Lantern. I think Green Lantern suffered from a pace problem and from a plot problem. It uh it And honestly, I'm going to say a casting problem. I love Ryan Reynolds. I think he's hilarious. I think he was the wrong choice for um the Green Lantern. Um I agree. But I'm glad he did it cuz he met his wife and they 100% deserve each other. <laughs> Yeah, they do. Um, I agree. There's, there are. I found that the the stuff, the, the pacing, where the pacing became, I think, an issue for me in Green Lantern was that where you should have had peak interest, I was bored. 
Um, mm-hmm. The plot didn't feel – they could have done better. They could have, Especially with the Green Lantern, they could have done um, more to make it interesting. Um, to have, they could have really pulled out a bigger plot, and they needed that. It just felt so ho-hum, really. It just I didn't feel like much. They made the wrong decisions with Green Lantern, and it really set the the tone of what we were going to get out of the DC verse, and no one was pleased. Like, no, nah. it felt not. It off. felt almost far. It felt almost farcical, and yeah. I don't think that's what they were going for. Um, which is why I think that Ryan kinda, Reynolds was a mistake in the casting. I mean, I love him. I think he's an awesome actor. I think he's very entertaining, but I don't think he was the right choice for Hal Jordan. No, I agree. It should have, it should have been somebody else. I honestly would like to see a black um, um, Green Lantern. I'd be good with that. Yeah. And there is one. There is one. I forget the character's name. I agree. It did feel like a Dick Tracy comic movie. It didn't feel at all like... Um, okay. John, John Stewart is the Green Lantern who was black. So I think if we get a... Um, see, Hal Jordan went from 84 to 86. And the Green Lantern that was black, John Stewart, became for issues 182 through 200, but they're not giving me dates. But I do think that if they're going to bring the Green Lantern back into... Um, the um, the DC universe for the movies that they should probably bring in someone like John Stewart um, to give the cast some fucking diversity. It would be great. I mean, you know, we got Jason, um, who's half Samoan and half black, I believe. Or is he half? He's half Samoan, but I'm not sure what his other half is. That that I think what she just said was the Rock. I think Dwayne Johnson is half Samoan and half black. His, I think his father's from Canada, and his mother was Samoan. I think, but I'm not sure about. But I, I could have these. I could have things mixed up in my head. I get. I okay. So yeah, that is the Rock. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure about um, Jason Momoa. Um, but um he's born in Honolulu. His mother is Hawaiian. His father is native Hawaiian ancestry is in his mother of okay, his father is Hawaiian and his mother is German, Irish and Native American. That's Jason Momoa. Okay. <clears throat> Okay. But I do. I, I would like to see a black um, Green Lantern, and I think John Stewart would be an excellent choice. And um, I don't. I don't know if they actually deserve Idris Elba, but I wouldn't be mad. I wouldn't either. But I, I'm pretty sure almost nobody <laughs> deserves Idris Elba. <laughs> no, 
we're not good enough for Idris Elba. The whole world is not good enough for Idris. We're just we're just thankful he's here. Yeah, John Stewart would be great. Somebody who could fill that role. Um. Um, anyway, so on the on, on back to kind of deal with deal with pacing. Um, from a micro issue on your pacing, sometimes you get through your rough draft and you go back to edit. You can make small adjustments that can dramatically affect your pace in um, editing. And I would say be prepared to edit with that in mind because. If things are dragging a little bit, you can cut some stuff out. You can cut detail out. You can make your sentences shorter. You can, um, I would say with that, what I call transitional dialogue, you can remove that where people are saying hi and goodbye and stuff like that. I mean, there's ways you can make things crisper if you're kind of dragging. But conversely, if things are moving too quickly through a section, you can put that stuff in and kind of drag it, kind of, kind of draw things out a little bit. Um, Give a little bit more character interaction. Have some telling moments between people. There are ways to kind of tweak your pace without doing um, like a massive rewrite. It's just editing. And if you kind of read your story with your pace in mind, you'll kind of get a, you should kind of feel when you're reading it, this is choppy or this is going too fast or that feels like I got slapped in the face. Um, and sometimes you do write an extra scene, a short one, to kind of break up to really high action or high intensity moments to kind of smooth the pace out a little bit so that it doesn't feel like jagged. Um, so there's kind of the deliberate part of like determining what you want to do with your pace up front, but there's also this element of coming back in and refining your pace when you edit. And you don't have to get it all right when you write. Um, you don't want to slow yourself down in in your rough draft, but it is really worth worth looking closely at your pacing when you're editing, because you can take your story from being good to being exceptional by removing or adding in pretty simple things that will really affect the the pace and the tone. Um, I know I smooth out things a lot that change the pace subtly when I edit. I do a lot of ironing in the editing, too, just to kind of get things, you know, a word here, a word there, a sentence here. Make this sentence a little shorter, this this sentence a little longer. Combine these sentences. And you'd be surprised that just, like, you're honestly just combining sentences or shortening sentences can really impact your pace on a micro level. And, again, this isn't something that your reader should even recognize. It should fly by. They might. They they're more likely to notice that you haven't done it than you have, because if if everything is flowing smoothly, they're not going to notice, and that's great, perfect. If you haven't again, because you be don't like, want oh. to drag your reader. Yeah. Right. Dragging me. You don't want to drag your reader. And this is another reason why it helps to get a little bit of distance between your 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 draft and your your first major edit give yourself a breather is because you're going to be more sensitive to your own pace when the story is not so fresh in your mind. And you're going to be like, okay, because you don't just spot your own typos better when you've got some distance. You notice your own rhythm better. 
because you're like, well, that was a little bit brisk, maybe a little too brisk. Maybe this is all happening too fast. Or, well, that's kind of dragging. And you're going to be more sensitive to that when it is not something you just wrote. You know, it's very difficult for me to finish a story and turn right around and edit it. <laughs> so get your, give a little bit of space and just put pacing in, in your mind when you're editing because small adjustments can make a huge difference in the overall flow of the finished story. So um, we got about eight-ish minutes left. Uh, so does anybody have any questions about pacing in the chat room? Um, <clears throat> what you need to keep in mind about all of these skills that we talk about when it comes to plotting and character development and pacing is that the longer you write, the more you write, the more natural these things to, that will will come to you. And right now on the outset, it might look like a lot of work that you don't want to do because you want to start writing right now. The more you do it, the more natural it will come to you and it won't feel like work. It will just be part of your process. And it's important to develop your process and hone your process with each project because what what I'm doing here in this unit, the, the plotting 101, is just a, an example of one of the processes that I use to create. Um, but it's my process, so I don't expect you to adopt it wholesale. What you need to do is pick and choose the parts of my process that you like, that, that work for you, and incorporate them into your process. And then go read somebody else's process and pick out the parts of their process that you really enjoy and suck those into your process, right? Because none of us are exactly the same, so our process shouldn't be the same. Now, if you want to follow this to the letter and let it be your process, you go right ahead and you do that. If that's what works for you, if that makes you comfortable, if you feel like this is exactly what you want to do, do it. But own it. And eventually it will feel natural. It won't at first. Doing anything new does not feel natural when you first do it. But the more you do it, the more it's just going to feel like yours. So you may adopt somebody else's process wholesale, but eventually it's going to feel like your process, and it's not going to matter where how you came by it. Pull things in and take things out um, that don't fit with your natural rhythm, and that is the point. That's what you should be doing um, as a writer as you grow into um, the craft. And that's all I gotta say about that. Speaking of pacing, I think that Forrest Gump is a master class. He takes you on a journey. And he makes you go at his pace. You have to settle in and relax. And take in his story at the pace he wants to give it to you. And it is it is fascinating to, to watch that movie and to take it apart as as a as a writer. Because um Forrest as a storyteller, um, um his narrative is deceptively simple. The story he tells you is is rich and vibrant and sad and funny and victorious and miserable 
all at the same time. And that's a rare thing. Now, Forrest Gump got a lot of attention. It won awards. And it earned them, right? I mean, it was it was all the things that it should have been. But they did have a movie like Castaway. Hmm. Must we? Uh. <laughs> 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 and okay, so here's here's Castaway. Castaway is a story about uh, a man who who moves too fast, who's forced um, into a situation where. He has no control over his situation, and he has to create control. And he ends up on a deserted island um, after a plane crash, and um, he doesn't know what's going into, you know, finding him or searching for him or anything. And he's he's on this island with very little supplies. And um, the story you're told about him is 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 at at times. Um, kind of shocking and um then there's that moment where he finally masters fire and then you're like yay and then the tooth thing comes you're thinking please don't do it please don't do it please don't and then it you black out right he blacks out so you black out with him and then it skips there's this huge time skip and you eventually learn through his kind of um psychotic ramblings to Wilson that his situation got so bad on the island that he tried to kill himself or that he planned to kill himself and then it didn't work out. His plan wasn't um, going to work. Um, and his attachment to Wilson is is so dramatic that when he loses Wilson, it's like a character really died in, in, the, in, the, in the movie, you know. So, But I think that um, whereas Forrest Gump had an excellent grasp of storytelling and and, and pace um, and this is not a reflection on Tom Hanks at all I do think that Castaway suffered for its pacing but you can I look agree. at those two examples of an actor who's very good at his job and see that the, that the plots themselves um, determined his performance compare and contrast It is an interesting comparison, um, those two, because I never, when I saw Forrest Gump, you, you don't sit there in the movie. If you're sitting there thinking about the pace, again, you're noticing it, and you shouldn't be. When I saw Forrest Gump, I was never tempted to turn the channel, leave the theater. I did see it in the theaters, but I wasn't tempted to leave. Um, I do forward, there are a couple scenes I forward through now just because I don't particularly enjoy the character dynamics, but that's a different issue. I don't need its pace. Um but with Castaway, it was it was it was it was it wasn't torturous, but it was it was boring. Um, it was very yeah. tedious. And the thing is, there was a lot of really good character work in that that is lost in the boredom. Um, Tom Hanks is a stunning actor. I mean, he's just a really he's a tour de force whenever you see him on the screen, and then to see him kind of um, laboring. In the pace of Castaway is, is, is kind of agonizing, and not in a good way. It's it's We're down to ninety seconds. <clears throat> I hope that this podcast has been very helpful um, in our discussions about pace. And please read the articles that I attached to the unit.
um, on pacing because um, they said it all better than I could have. <laughs> and also, I didn't want to write an article. <laughs> Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Thank you.